There's an ancient Eastern story about an elephant, which was later put into poetic form by a British poet named John Godfrey Sachs in 1872. I'd like to recite that poem for you now. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk, within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud, loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. <laughs> now that poem has been used to make different points by different people, but the point I want to make today is that you'll need to hear an entire series of sermons to see the elephant in my preaching. I encourage you to be faithful in attendance or listen online when you can't make it in order to get the big picture. Next week, we'll con conclude our current series, which as it turns out, will have been brought to you in 20 parts. <laughs> and today we will complete sort of a mini series inside the larger series consisting of three messages um, on how we can be a better spiritual family at Go Church. Let's review what we've discovered so far in this uh, series within a series. Uh, you might want to fill in these blanks uh, in your listening guide, again, to get the big picture. First, we covered three principles taught at the end of chapter 12 from verse 14. Number one, for a better family, pursue peace. Then from verse 15, for a better family, receive grace. And from verses 16 through 17, number three, for a better family, walk by faith. The next week, we covered three more principles from chapter 13. From verse 1, for a better family, continue in love. From verse 2, for a better family, open doors to strangers. And then a much-needed reminder from verse 3, for a better family, remember the persecuted. Continuing on in chapter 13 today... We'll cover our final three principles on how to be a better family for each other in the church. Let's read our main text in its entirety, and then we'll get right into it. And if you haven't picked it up yet and you're new here, we walk right through Scripture most of the time here. So uh, whatever I preach today, just you just happen to walk in for it. That's just where we're at. Uh, so in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 4. 
Here's what it says in the Word of God. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, before we break this down into bite-sized pieces, we ought to remember that this passage fits within the larger context of becoming a better church family. It would be easy to lift these instructions out and talk about them individually. For instance, we could take verse 4 and spend a week or two talking about marriage in general. But we would do better to talk about marriage in the context of the spiritual family of the church because that is the intent of the inspired author. What does marriage have to do with the church family anyway? Well, it has everything to do with it, as you'll see. The reason we know this passage continues to be pointed toward how to grow a better church family is that we're careful not to look only at a tail or an ear or a tusk. We're looking at the whole elephant. We are looking at all of this in light of the larger context. The verse before this ends with the phrase, since you are still in the body. As discussed last time, this is actually a reference to the body of Christ the church, the point being that we should care about others in the body who are suffering, being persecuted because we are in the same body, the same family. Two verses before that, we have the admonition to let love of the brethren continue. And as we discuss, brethren is always a biblical reference to the church. One of the best ways to misunderstand the Bible is to pull things out of context. I try very hard not to do that. So understand that we're still talking about the things we can do to have a better church family. The elephant in the room in that regard is that none of this happens easily or automatically. And that what I do as a member of the family impacts you and vice versa. So principle number seven, for a better family, honor marriage. From verse four, which says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Folks, throughout the Bible, there are warnings to the churches about the seriousness of allowing sexual immorality to go on in the spiritual family. There are so many passages where not just individuals, but churches are told that, they, um, that, that they're in serious error because fornication and adultery are being allowed to continue undeterred in their midst. Why is this such a big deal in the church? Because more than any other single thing, sexual immorality destroys fellowship. Sexual immorality and sexual unfaithfulness, that is to say fornication and adultery, destroy brotherhood and sisterhood like nothing else. These areas of sin will first wreck your physical family, and if that isn't enough, these tandem tragedies will absolutely go on to ravage your spiritual family. That is, if you have one, which is kind of another sermon. Um, So much in Hebrews is about the need to have a spiritual family. You probably all know the central truth from chapter 10, verse 25, where we're told not to forsake the gathering that we must continue to meet together and be together and do life together as believers. But here at the end, we're being reminded that this will not be easy. 
No family is easy. In truth, the church is called to actively discipline those who practice sexual immorality and who are sexually unfaithful, and that is because, left unchecked, these behaviors will severely damage or even destroy the church as a whole. This is why in our membership expectations, which is basically a covenant, we ask incoming members to make a commitment that they will do their best to abstain from sexual immorality. It's one of the commitments we hope members will make. Make no mistake, our doors are open to anyone who wants to attend our church. Anyone can come and hear the truth, the gospel, the word of God, anyone. But if you decide to join the family, you should understand that you're signing up for some accountability. We want folks to know what they are signing up for when they join our church. So we ask for a commitment which you will learn about in our orientation class if you attend. And one of the most important things members commit to is to abstain from sexual immoral, sexually immoral behavior. Now, if you think asking for this commitment is too much, you should understand that it actually gets worse than just asking. The New Testament is clear that if members of any particular church are living in open, unrepentant sexual sin, they are to be removed from the fellowship. Here at this church, we're trying to avoid having to do that by making clear what membership means on the front end. That said, and yes, I really mean this, if you are a member of the family who is regularly participating in, sexually, in sexual immorality and you're not ready to repent or turn away from it, then I would humbly ask that you remove yourself from membership until you're ready to change your behavior. Where am I getting all this from our text? Remember all that stuff I said about the importance of context? You need to understand that this verse about marriage is very much connected to how we are to behave in the church. That's exactly what this is about. Marriage is to be honored in the church. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled in the church. If marriage is no longer honored anywhere else, it must be honored in the church of Jesus Christ. These are instructions about how to have a better, and I should say, how to have a biblical church family. Newsflash, the true family of God still believes in one man married to one woman for life. Even in my lifetime, the world has grown to hate God's definition of marriage and God's definition of the family. I wonder why. They either hate marriage or they want to redefine it with perversion. This attack has recently turned even toward children who, interestingly, always come from one man and one woman. Hmm, maybe it's important. And yet those who would dishonor and defile the marriage bed now start with kids, and the younger the better. They teach them to dishonor God's definition of marriage, which, by the way, is closely related to both gender and heterosexuality. Hmm, wonder why those two things are being attacked. What will we do about all of this within the household of faith? We are called to maintain God's standard. While the world is hell-bent on dishonoring marriage and family in every way that is humanly possible, we must stand 
for God's definition of marriage and family without the slightest compromise. But it's not only what we believe and where we stand that matters, is it? No, please hear this. For whatever church you have joined, your marriage is literally foundational to that church or your future marriage. Foundational. Marriage is the foundation of family, and your marriages are foundational to this church. Trust me, if most of our marriages are weak, so will be our church. By the way, if you ever wanted a clear statement about what God thinks of marriage, you can start with Hebrews 13.4. The Word of God is not unclear about what the position of the church must be on marriage. And of course, I realize that many people don't care about God's Word or what it says. But more importantly, do we? Do we care? Do we care about what God has said or more about the world and what the world is saying? When it comes to sexual immorality or fornication and sexual unfaithfulness or adultery, what have you believed? What are fornication and adultery? Well, biblically speaking, there are two spheres of sexual immorality. There is the sphere involving those who are not married, and there is the sphere involving those who are married. Generally speaking, adultery refers to sexual, sexual immorality committed by those who are married, and fornication refers to sexual immorality committed by those who are not. I say that because if you're married and you commit any kind of sexual immorality, it doubles as unfaithfulness to your spouse. Remember, Jesus said even lust is like adultery. So basically, fornication may be thought of as sexual sin committed by single people, while adultery is sexual sin committed by married people. I believe that to be the intent of these words, particularly in the context of verse 4. We can defile and dishonor the marriage bed from either direction. The Greek word translated as fornication can mean any sexual immorality. But as it is placed side by side with adultery here, I think the main idea of it is premarital sex or really any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, among other things, I fully recognize that in the world, premarital sex is expected and even encouraged. It's so common now, even among professing Christians, particularly of the last two generations, that it seems like many churches have basically given up on this one. I mean, even many who may still reluctantly preach against homosexual behavior have given up on telling their young Christian couples that they should not be living together. This is not only wrong and sad, but it is also hypocritical and unjust. Do we preach the truth to what is being practiced, or do we preach around what is being practiced? I preach the truth, which is this, particularly in the church, let marriage be honored by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And maybe someone says, fine, I just won't be a part of your church or any church that preaches this. Do you know what I say to that? Bye. Now, why would I be that way? Am I just being unloving? Am I wanting you to leave because I don't like you? No, I am letting you go because as a pastor, I am tasked with caring for the church as a whole. And when you bring ongoing willful sin, unrepentant sin into this family, it hurts us all. 
We're a family. It hurts our witness, and it means that as a church, we are being disobedient to the Word of God in an area where there's not the slightest bit unclear. I'm saying that if you're going to willfully live in sexual sin and refuse to repent, then not only do I hope you go, but if I know about it, I will reluctantly, along with the other pastors, be forced to show you the door. That is, if you're a committed part of this church family. Now, I'd much rather someone come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repent, make a change, and stay with us. But if not, I say it with sadness, but the truth is we are better off without you. We must honor biblical marriage in the church. We must. How's that for tolerance? How's that for staying palatable to the culture? No. I'd rather keep our biblical integrity than keep more people. And some will say, I'm not being very loving today, but listen, love is not the absence of truth. Love is caring enough to speak the truth, even when it costs, and it does cost. Cost me. Cost me potential disciples, potential people I might influence with the gospel if they would give me more time. Cost us potential church members who might contribute to our cause in various ways. Cost popularity and gains us less than a favorable position in our community because they don't agree with the Word of God. And I hate that. But I love this church. And even those very people who need to repent too much to not share what is clear from the Word of God. Maybe you think I'm picking on a straw man, and this doesn't really need to be said here in this place because we're all on the same page. First, I would not count on that at all. Second, if any of this doesn't need to be said here, that is because I've said it before. (laughs) Pruning is ongoing. Hundreds, if not a thousand, probably more than a thousand people have come through our door since we started four years ago. Somehow, not everyone stays. I I don't know why. Was it something I said? (laughs) So, what is the number one way the marriage bed is being defiled, even in the church, which is the context, even in the church today. I'll mention it again one more time, premarital sex. Just in case you've been living under a rock, bless your heart, prevailing wisdom is that it would be downright crazy. I'm telling you, there's plenty of younger people never even heard the idea that it'd be crazy to marry someone before sleeping with him or her and living together for a while to see how it goes. This is now the norm. Commonplace, even among Christian young people. Why do so many churches, especially larger churches, say nothing? Because they do not want to lose all the young people and become just another church for a previous generation. I hear from other pastors, especially pastors of large churches, that their pews are filled with people who claim to be Christians but are living together before marriage. Sometimes it almost seems that they're saying, I'm sorry, but I just can't afford to address it. But here we are at Hebrews 13, 4. Where do you think I should have gone with this? Well, it doesn't matter because I have the microphone, but listen, (laughs) because this is true. God's way is always best. And I can tell you from personal experience after 32 years of a marriage, a marriage bed that has never been defiled, either before the wedding with fornication or after the wedding with adultery, 
that whether you know it or not, young people, you should be so lucky as to have what I have had and still have with my wife. Yes, I'm telling you that we were both virgins when we got married. And we are both so glad. This just in, the world lies. But God tells the truth. So what about it here at Go Church? What about this branch of the family of God, this church? How are we doing with honoring marriage and keeping the marriage bed undefiled by such things as fornication and adultery? Well, we are probably doing better than some, but I'm under no delusions. I'm quite sure we have house cleaning that needs to be done in this area. I could have just focused on adultery, right? I mean, everyone knows and can see how adultery destroys, right? I mean, it's obvious. We are each and every one surely convinced that adultery ruins the immediate families involved and will severely damage any particular church family involved. But some people want to pretend that premarital sex or pornography or whatever other kind of sexual immorality, as long as it's consensual, isn't really so bad. What does the Bible say? It says both fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Wait, had I mentioned that part yet? No, I've only appealed to your concern for what these sins do to your spiritual family, your church. But there's more. Our text specifically says that God will judge these sins. And why? Why does God single these out as sins God will specifically judge? In the context of the church, because these particular areas of sin dishonor his family, perhaps more than anything else. Worse, these sins utterly destroy God's family from the inside out because, listen, God's family is built from human families. Our church, God's family is as strong is as, strong as your family if you're part of us. And how much does God care about his family? He died for it. In fact, God's the father of this family. And as such, he will do what he must to protect it. He will judge those who protect these, who, who, who practice these cancerous sins for the sake of the family. Now, notice that we don't see fornication receiving a lesser judgment than adultery, do we? By the same token, homosexual behavior, which also would fall under the word fornication, gets no less or worse judgment than adultery. And that's something to remember because, again, we all know adultery is terrible. The idea is that any sex outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is dishonoring and defiling to families of both types, physical and spiritual. As such, God will not stand idly by. No, he judges these sins, and I believe he'll judge churches who let these things go on without discipline. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what God says. All types of sexual immorality bring ruin to families and to the family of God. Who told you otherwise? Who told you it was okay? Not God, I can promise you that. But let's focus back on this family, our church family, which again is actually the context of this inspired passage. You want a better family here at Go Church? Good. We always want to be improving. And so let's get some more lights for the stage. No? Okay, let's build a building. No? That's not what we're learning today. No. How do we have a better church family? God says, stop dishonoring and defiling marriage with fornication and adultery. 
What kind of church family might we have if these sins were rooted out? You are the church. If you know Jesus as Savior, most of you are this church because you're committed. How do you need to honor marriage better? What do you need to do to make sure the marriage bed is undefiled? Never forget when marriage is dishonored and defiled in the church, we can expect the judgment of God. What does that mean? It can mean the removal of the blessing of God. I mean, I just pray we're not like the church of Laodicea, you know, thinking we are rich when really we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind. If so, we need to hear what Jesus ultimately said to the church, to that church. He said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Or we stop doing it. <laughs> Let marriage be honored in this church. Amen? Amen? Let the marriage bed be undefiled in this church. Amen? Amen? That's what God would say to us today. Out of the nine principles we're learning from Hebrews about how to be a better church family, nothing is more important than this. For a better family, honor marriage. Number eight, <clears throat> for a better family, be generous with money. <clears throat> generous with money. Okay, here we go. From bad to worse, right? <laughs> now it's going to be about money. Yeah, whatever. Look at it. From verses 5 and 6, the writer of Hebrews says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What do you call character that is enslaved to the love of money? Answer, I might have heard it, Greed. Now, follow me here because I speak the truth. The opposite of greed is generosity. That means that when we are not generous, we are greedy. I don't think anyone needs convincing that greed is a bad thing. And it's even worse in the church family because if there was ever a group that should be generous, it is the church. Why? Because the church has received the greatest generosity possible in the inheritance of eternal life with God through Christ. Too much is given, much is required. Most of you are aware of 1 Timothy 6.10, which says that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The Bible is abundantly clear that when our passion and greatest desire, or I would even say when, when one of our greatest desires is to gain wealth, we become spiritually poor. Does this mean you shouldn't work to succeed and be thankful when you earn material rewards? No. What it means is that the more you are blessed, the more generous you need to be, because generosity is not only the opposite of greed, it is also the antidote to greed. Listen, the more you have, the more what you have has you. That is, unless you constantly inoculate yourself with significant acts of generosity. Significant acts of generosity. That's a clear biblical principle. That's as true as truth. By the way, this is also the case for a church. And how a church handles the resources she has been given. Let me be honest with you. I'm not entirely comfortable with how much money this church has in savings right now. I'm sorry, uh, finance team, I'm sorry. I, I'm just not comfortable. Um, it's not just up to me what we do with it. I'm just telling you how I feel. I'm not really okay with just saving it all for a building. Uh, we can save some, of course, and we ought to have some backup funds, but we need to find more ways to give. I'm working on that. And just in case you don't know, we give away far more than most churches, I believe. 
uh, definitely more than 15% to missionary causes outside of our own church. And we're about to sponsor yet another church plant, by the way, uh, which will be our fourth. This one happens to be a Hispanic, Hispanic plant in Vancouver. We're going to help them out because they have a ton of potential for the kingdom. And still one more side note, Vea Glacia, our current Hispanic plant in Woodland, just had a major breakthrough. Just wanted to report this. They recently started a Bible study in an apartment complex. And the first meeting they had, 30 new people showed up. It was great. I'm so excited. They've had a hard time. This was a major breakthrough. <laughs> Say a prayer for, for Martin and Grace and their team, for Vea Glacia and Woodland, one of our Go Network plants. I told Martin if they need money for anything to ask. Why? Because as a church, we want to be generous with the money God has provided, always. Back to us as individuals. You don't want to become a greedy person, right? Man, I mean, nothing is worse. Those who are greedy are the most miserable people on earth. But wait, did anyone set out to be greedy? Of course not. It happens over time. So how do you make sure you don't become that person? And how do we make sure our church family is marked by generosity rather than greed, okay? The answer is in our text, and it's not specifically said as generosity. We're going to get there. The answer is actually how we become generous, which is the opposite of greedy. But notice in verse 5 that contentment is the key. The key to what? To becoming not greedy, a.k.a. generous. Again, contentment is the key. But how do we become Content, answer by trusting God for providence. The principle here in our text can be stated very simply. Contentment comes from trust. If you think about it, there's a pretty big life answer there. The way to make sure you are not greedy is to be content with what you have, verse 5. And listen, the way to be content with what you have is to trust that God is your helper, and that he will never forsake you, verse 6. In other words, to battle greed Find contentment in the future providence of God. To battle greed, find contentment in the future providence of God. That is what is there in our text. Worried about retirement, later in life, what might go wrong, the stock market, whatever. Worried about those things. Trust that God will provide always because he always does. I mean, really, would you rather get what you can get or what God can give? Somebody says, I don't know. Let me see them side by side. I'm going to kind of figure this out here. Well, you missed the point, which is that when you look to God and trust in what he gives, you trade greed for contentment. Well, see, folks, contentment is what everybody wants. Contentment is what your greed is trying to get, but it can't. No, brother or sister, contentment and ultimately generosity, the opposite of greed, comes from trusting God. Contentment's the very thing that everybody's looking for, whether they know it or not. And listen, the way to get it is not with more stuff. More money, more stuff never brought a shred of contentment to anyone. In fact, more money and stuff can lead to discontentment faster than anything. Because maybe even than poverty, because with poverty, you can at least hope for what you don't have. Maybe in poverty, you're less disillusioned because you don't know that having more isn't what you think it is. Regardless, the only way to have real contentment, which leads to generosity, is to trust God with your present and future, knowing that he is a good father and he wants better things for you than you even know to desire. So simple, so true. Contentment comes from trust. And this leads to what? Generosity. In fact, the contentment that comes from trust destroys greed, which leads to even more contentment. Remember that. This brings me back to the overall point which is that if we're a better church family, 
We need to be generous with our money. And again, where do I get this from the text? What does it say? I'm sort of reverse engineering these verses, but what they mean is this. Be generous with your money because you know what God, that God has you. That's basically what they're saying. Be generous with your money because you know that God has you. He's got this. He's got you. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think we will have a better church family with generosity or with greed? <laughs> we have a better church family. People love their money and don't trust God to provide, or if they give their money where it's needed, finding contentment in the future providence of God. Well, duh, of course, the answer is obvious in theory, right? What if we've only scratched the surface? What if there isn't a church today that's really scratched the surface in the area of generosity? I don't have to say particularly in America, where we're richer than 98% of the world. But what if we haven't scratched the surface? What if our, our sort of our, our, our metrics, well, I'm going to give this much as a lot to me, maybe if we're not even close. Now, I do believe some of you have been very, very generous to this church family. It's not an area where, in general, Go Church needs a scolding. You are a generous church. And so keep up the good work. And I guess I would say to any individuals that need to hear it, consider joining the party and you'll be glad you did. By the way, I'm not even mostly talking about your tithes and, and, and offerings today. Find ways to help people. And if I could say one other little bit of instruction, you know what? It doesn't always have to be anonymous. Is a you know, pastor can, I'm just kind of leave, let's just relieve that. It doesn't always have to be anonymous. Lovingly help somebody out openly. Let others be encouraged by what you're doing. I understand the danger. I know what Jesus said to the Pharisees. They were the Pharisees. Maybe you're not. Um, Let's just not always think that we have to hide everything good that we ever do. We need a testimony. So it's okay to love people with generosity in the church. More than okay. Learn to live this way. You make us a better family. You actually have the power to do that anytime you choose. We read about the incredible fellowship of the early church in the first several chapters of Acts. There's one thing that stands out perhaps more than anything else, and that is the fact that they were generous with each other. They shared freely with the church and pooling their resources, they were able to turn the world upside down for Christ. For a better family, we need to continue to be generous with our money. Lastly, for a better family, follow spiritual leadership. All right, we've gone from bad to worse, uh, to worser, right? Uh, he went on he went on a rant, got all tough on sexual sin, then he tried to get our money, and now he wants our followership too. I don't know how you think. Well, let's just read it. Let's just read it. From verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And also, skipping ahead to verse 17, verses 17 through 18, same chapter, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be un unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Let me say that I believe this church is on the right track when it comes to this principle. In fact, the Go Church family is wonderful to her pastors. And I believe this is one of the reasons that we are a healthy church. Particularly, this is the primary reason we have unity. And it's why we're going to be able to move forward to do great things together. Remember that in the days to come. Having said that you are good at this, 
It's always also good to remember what the Bible says, even in those areas where we are basically on the right track, because it doesn't take much to start going in the wrong direction. Ever been in a church where this went the wrong direction? I have. So let me establish who these leaders are. The writer of Hebrews is clearly talking about the pastors of the church, those who are in other places referred to interchangeably as elders or overseers. Here in today's text, we don't see one of those words, but more gener generically, the author simply refers to the leaders of the church. So how do we know who he's talking about? Well, in verse 7, these leaders are referenced as those who led you and those who spoke the word of God to you. This is a reference to both directional leadership for the church as well as the authoritative preaching of the Word of God in the church. And of course, these are the primary roles of pastors, also known as elders or overseers. To be more specific, I would say that in verse 7, the author refers to those pastors who planted the church, who started it, who apparently have now moved on to plant other churches. But then in verse 17, he speaks of their current leaders, referring to them as those who keep watch over your souls. Keeping watch is the idea behind both overseer and shepherd, which, of course, is the literal translation of the word pastor. Pastor in the Greek is poimen, means shepherd. You know, you, you order your tacos all pastor or whatever. It's tacos of the shepherd, okay? Um, and so we can also see that the author's talking about pastors from the phrase, those who must give an account. Since other scripture tells us that pastors or elders are going to answer to God at a higher level of accountability, something I keep in the forefront of my mind. If anyone uh, is just dying to further, do further study on um, what the Bible says regarding pastoral leadership, you could start by looking at Acts 20, verse 28, which among other, th other things, it says pastors are actually placed in their position by the Holy Spirit. This is the idea of calling. You could look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, where it says pastors have charge over the church and the Lord, and also indicating that inasmuch as pastors are esteemed, so the church will be at peace. As I said, I think our church is on good footing in this regard. I'm not looking for more authority. I'm not looking for more esteem, but rather this just happens to be where we have arrived in our study through the book of Hebrews. That said, very briefly, notice the actions called for in our text. You've got some blanks to fill in there. Verse 7 says, remember them. Remember them. I think the idea here is to be thankful for or to give honor to pastors or other spiritual leaders who've made a difference in your life. Don't forget them. Remember them. Oh, by the way, guys, this would include Pastor James, okay? He's like a pastor to you. Uh, also in verse 7, it says, uh, imitate them. Pastors should lead by example. Members of the spiritual family should, be, should not be ashamed to follow that example. And even to say, I'm, I'm following that example. Obviously, this is humbling, if not frightening, for us who are called in this role. And certainly, we're inadequate, which is why I always try to say, follow me only in as much as I am following Jesus. Then verse 17, it says, obey them. Oh, my. Really? I'm aware it's a tough word for today. Our society has trained a, a, an entire generation to hate authority. Godly parents had to work hard to counter the culture in this regard. By the way, Dad, how you respond to the police officer when he pulls you over is important. Your kids are watching. You know, people who have no respect for earthly authority eventually deny God as well. But the very idea that church members should obey not only God, but another man can sound scandalous or self-serving in my case, but God's word speaks for itself, or perhaps I should say what God has said he has said. Next, in the second half of verse 17, our text says, submit to them. 
It just gets, keeps getting worse, doesn't it? That's not my fault. I need to submit to another person? Like bow the knee? Yeah, that's actually what this actually means, pretty much. I, don't, I would never want that, literally. I'm just, just that's pretty, I mean, it, it's, it's as bad as it sounds, is what I'm saying. You can't go to the Greek and go, well, maybe it's not as bad in the Greek. No, just as bad. It's an unpopular word, unpopular concept. But the real difficulty comes in actually doing it when that person's not saying what you want to hear. You know, by definition, submission generally means you don't agree. If you agreed, you wouldn't need to submit. None of us likes to submit because submission means laying down our preferences, our opinions, our desires. That's pretty tough to do because when it comes right down to it, we want what we want. We think what we think. Well, better families submit to each other, and ultimately they submit to the men whom God has called to be spiritual leaders, and that includes the church. Lastly, in verse 18, I think we see the idea that we should pray for them. You know, the author of the book makes a, a shift here. He turns, turns it on himself, and he has to be included. It's right there in, the, in just a string of things about leaders, and he's the, now he's thinking about him, himself as a leader, and he asks for prayer. Pray for me. Pray for us. The idea is that the prayers of the church are a great benefit to those who are called to lead the church. Side note, this is one spot. This is for trivia people and people that like to get academic, which I don't usually a whole lot in my sermons. But this is one spot that points me in the direction of the Apostle Paul as the author of Hebrews. Though, as I told you before, I think he had a lot more help from Luke on this book than usual. That's my theory, uh, which is why the Greek is more like uh, Luke than Paul. Can't go all the back into that today, but here the author is the guy who planted the church, I think. And he says, hey, don't forget me either. And please pray for me. More importantly, I think the thought process of the inspired author goes something like this. Don't simply obey and submit to your pastors, but also pray for us. You do do that, right? Because without your prayer support, we just might lead this family straight off a cliff. The idea is that pastors don't lead independently of the support of the church. But rather, we're in this thing together. We need you. We need your prayers. Sometimes we need your thoughts and ideas and wisdom. Sometimes we need your advice. And I mean, not all the time, but you know, sometimes. Occasionally, but not too often. Well, anyway, we definitely need your prayers. Now, that's a lot about pastoral authority with words like obey and submit, and I know it's easy for me to say, right? But on the other hand, if you think this kind of authority sounds really great, you may be naive. <laughs> Are you sure you want to captain a ship in God's army? Um, I love my job, but let me tell you, the responsibility is heavy. Thankfully, I do have a team. And folks, your pastors need you on board. We need your help. We need your help. In case you didn't know, we're under attack. Like, really, we're under attack. I mean, nothing new this week, I don't think. Or maybe there was. But the point is, we're sort of always under attack. Hopefully you understand what I mean. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces of wickedness and all the rest. And so please pray for us. And for all of you who do, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd possibly be dead without you. It's very possible. I want to thank you. If not physically dead, emotionally dead, for sure. Need your prayers. Look back at the second half of verse 17 where the author says, Let them do this with joy and not with grief, 
See? For this would be unprofitable for you. That's what I'm talking about. We're in this together. We're a family. Your pastors, pastors need your support. We need your prayer. You know, pastors that lose their joy start doing a crummy job. And that's not profitable for you. Puts some responsibility back on the church, doesn't it? It's almost like you get what you pray for. Or maybe if you don't want any support, don't be supportive. Or something like that. It's back on you to some degree. We're in this together. We're a family. And, you, you know, you can either make this a, 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 a better family or you can make it a worse family. You can make it or you can break it. You're either part of keeping us undefiled or you're causing defilement. Did you hear that? Within this family, go church. You can either be causing defilement or you can help keep us undefiled. You are helping us be generous or you're contributing to greed. You are following spiritual leadership or you're causing dissension. But the thing is, we could become a better family today. This is the power of the gospel. Because Jesus died for our sins on the cross. And so we could become a better family today by one simple thing called repentance. To repent is to turn away from sin and go the other direction. They were going this way, I repent, you're going this way. We talked about three major areas where someone might need to repent. The enemy of repentance is pride. If you want people to think you don't have any need to repent, then you cannot help us get better today. But if you're willing to swallow your pride and turn away from sin, leaving it at the cross, then I'm going to ask you to come forward in just a moment and to pray. Those who can't physically kneel, I've left the front row open. You can sit there. I don't know, maybe our church is perfect. Maybe we, we don't have any need to repent about our marriages. Maybe we don't have any need to repent about spiritual leadership and how we are about it. Um, maybe we don't have any need to repent for greed or our lack of generosity. I don't know. Or maybe we just don't care. Maybe we don't really care if we help this become a better family or if we're part of the problem or part of the solution. I don't know. Not saying everybody has to come forward, but I hope that if you, God has spoken to your heart at some point today, maybe one of the points, maybe that some of it was just you didn't, it wasn't you, but maybe there was something. You have something you need to repent of. By the way, some of the youth here today, you, you kind of have, in a way, it's not ideal, honestly. I wish you were here every Sunday, I'll just say it, but the fact is you do kind of almost have your own church on Wednesday nights. Because um, they, have, they have worship, they have preaching, they have everything that you do in a church. Um, and you're part of our church, whether you come here on Sunday mornings, which I wish you would, but, you know, we'll take, we'll take what we can get. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, if, if, you, if you can't think of this as your church today, because maybe it's even your first time here, think about your youth group. Okay? That's kind of like a church to you. So, are you part of the problem? Or are you part of the solution? Is there anything you need to repent of? 
So we're going to do that today. We're going to have a little time at the altar. Um, and uh, if the band would come up and start playing. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to fill this area or the seats in front. And let's, let's just spend some time in prayer. Everybody who will, let's show God that we're serious in a posture of, of repentance. I'll be right here with you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.